0: and welcome to The Week at Work. This is episode 11. Uh, I am your host David Gibney and with me today again I have three guests. We have our two regulars in Stevie Nolan from Trademark Belfast and Kieron Campbell who works for Mandate Trade Union in the North and Western Division. Uh, but also on the show this week we have a, another special guest we have John Barry who's a uh, Green Party activist and as he def- re- refers to himself on his Twitter account a, a recovering politician. Um, I, I believe also from memory, John, you're the, uh, you're the only professor of green political economy in the world. Is that right?
1: That is correct. I'm a proud Marxist lentilist.
0: <laughs> Good man. Um, listen, as usual, what we do is we, we review the front pages of uh, this week's papers or this weekend's papers. Um, so I'll go to our guests first to, to let us know what papers you've been reviewing and what are the stories on the front.
1: Yeah, I was looking at the, the Business Post, the uh, Sunday Independent, and then a, a local rag from the north here, the Sunday Life. So, the Business Post has um, a couple of stories on the front page. One is, and I hope we do have a chance to get into it, apparently this uh, misrecollection of a meeting between Varadkar when he was Taoiseach and some of the banks down south about whether or not they could be uh, legally allowed to not charge interest on mortgages and, and people having mortgage breaks during the, the COVID crisis and so on. They claim that they uh, they have to charge interest, but actually it turns out they don't. So I'm surprised, surprised there. Uh, when was the last time this happened where an Irish government minister was uh, bamboozled by, by banks? Yeah. Then we have on the same uh, front page, my own mucker Eamon Ryan uh, is now proposing <laughs> to put the uh, the cost of rural broadband on the households themselves uh, on the basis that, well, urban constituents aren't getting the, the same deal. So that's the two uh, on, on, on that page. Then of course, all over every paper then on, in terms of the, Sunday so independent is big Jack Charlton uh, passing away. and Lots of uh, eulogies, people sharing memories of, from everything that uh, I've read, it seems like he was, he was a decent guy. Uh, I've certainly seen uh, some good stories that ha- aren't haven't been included in the paper. I just want to tell one that I picked up there uh, earlier on this morning. Apparently in Italian 90, of course, they went to see the Pope, the Irish team, and the Pope in particular, because he was um, uh, a goalie in, a, in his youth, asked who the uh, who the goalie was. And of course, Paddy Bonner put up his hand and the Pope sat beside him and uh, said, well, now, you know, good luck, lads. And then, of course... That name that I can't even bring myself to to say, Scalacci, the little bastard, uh, who did us in in Italia 90. And of course, Packy failed. Well, apparently, he was devastated. And in the dressing room afterwards, Jack Charlton gave him a rousing speech. The team said, Listen, you did us proud. You know, I can't ask anything more of you. You know, the country is proud of you. And the last person to leave was Packy Bonner. And I don't know who was left in with him, but Jack Charlton sat down, took out a fag. Started smoking it, a big smile. and Then he said to this remaining Irish player, whose name I forget, he said, "You know what? The fucking Pope would have saved that."
0: <laughs> Lovely, Davy. You have something to contribute
2: on Jack? No, just that there wasn't much coverage of Jack's politics, which is usual in establishment papers. I mean, he was a people forget that he started off as a miner himself. You know, went down the mines before he became a professional footballer, and he was a he marched many years at the Durham Miners Gala was a supporter of the minor strike in the 80s, supporter of a close friend of Arthur Scargill, and actually a founding member of the Anti-Nazi League um, and stood against the National Front in the 1970s. Um, and they don't print that about Jack, and he's a bad socialist as well. And him and kind of Brian Clough, I remember following him through as a young kid because they spoke differently about the world and about politics than most other football players and managers did. So I think we should remember that legacy as well, you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... the the coverage is really good. And what's great about now social media and the internet is that you can find those stories yourself. You don't have to rely on the mainstream media to tell you their background. Although to be fair, there's some good articles today um, in the papers and I'll just go through one little bit here from the page three of the Sunday independent where um the, the, the author is Wayne O'Connor, and he says, you could take the Robert Emmett quote about Ireland not being a nation until we take our place among the nations of the world. Well, here was Ireland, through the Irish soccer team, taking its place among the world, performing on a global stage and giving a, a sense of pride to people. Uh, the economy was in rag order, the politics was dirty, Charlie High uh, was in charge, and it was a, a bad time generally, blah, blah, blah. He goes on to talk about <laughs> dumpy, Um Dunphy obviously wasn't a fan and there was huge tension between Dunphy and Charlton at the time in 1990 um, and it said even though Dunphy didn't like Charlton's tactics, the public did and I love this quote it says, during that whole thing this is a quote from Dunphy, during that whole thing I was having a coffee in the Westbury, there was a taxi rank outside with five cars on it I opened the door of the first taxi and the guy said, you can fuck off, I'm not taking you <laughs> so <laughs> I think, well uh, <laughs> <laughs> what you said there, Stevie, is is really interesting as well. I, I read some of those articles about Brian Clough, isn't it interesting that some of the best football managers in the world? Tend oh, here to be we go. Wing, here we go. Left wing Ackman. Here we go. I know where you're taking this.
3: Well, then, we'll continue. <laughs> oh, you're bringing Klopp into this, aren't you, Liverpool's No, I, 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 I was, I was bringing I, in. I, I, know, I
0: know this is where you're to take I, I, that. I was bringing in Shankly, <laughs> who worked uh, on the mines, along in from the same community as Alex Ferguson. Um, and some of the most successful managers in the world come from that socialist shop steward background and I think that's what what Shankly, Shankly has a very famous quote about his politics about how we all work hard on the football pitch um, and we all share the rewards and he says I see football the same way I see life and that's how I, that's why I'm a socialist, we all work hard, we all share the the rewards so I just think it's an
3: interesting... Yeah, that's interesting because I remember watching a documentary and I think it might have been about Bob Paisley. And Shankly Paisley and Alex Ferguson, um, all with that sort of working class background, came from a particular area within Scotland which was very close to each other um, in terms of where they lived. And like if you look at Alex Ferguson, he was previously a shop steward and um, he had no problem bawling out these multi-millionaires who didn't understand what a day's work was um, and quickly reminded them of what real working class and workers were, given his experiences of when he was a shop steward. Um, but that, I, that's what I was going to come on to, that people should remember Jack chart not only for what he achieved and did with Ireland, um, but similarly for the politics, um, which sort of formed the character of the man And the sort of no-nonsense attitude that he brought to that Irish team, which was a very good and strong team in terms of players um, and quality. But they were going nowhere. And he brought to them a system that wasn't the most beautiful to watch. But he was off the view, I only get maybe a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks to work with these guys who are coming from all different parts and clubs. And I have to develop a system whereby we can actually go out there, put them under pressure.
0: Mm. Uh, I'll go then to you, Kieran, since you're unmuted anyway. And w- what have you been looking at in the papers, the front pages? And well, the front pages, as I said,
3: as as John has said, Sunday Independent is running with the Jack Charlton story. But I looked at also the two tabloids um, from the North and South um, editions of the Sunday World. And in the Northern edition, it talks about um, the UVF going to have the 50 year um, celebratory bash in an East Belfast social club called The Raven. And that their top leader, um, a guy called Stephen Magers Matthews has not been invited. And um, interestingly, you know, th- these type of organizations and where they sit in Northern Ireland politics, just haven't gone away Um, and the Southern edition which I think is the the headline is a very interesting one given where we are in terms of the COVID-19 situation and now the sort of the caution that's been expressed in the media about the potential um, second wave arriving but two flights arrived in Dublin from Dallas since Thursday and on Saturday morning A particular individual um, who came off the Saturday morning flight, um, a woman called Kelly Guevara, which is an interesting surname, Um, she came from Miami and said that Miami is an apocalypse and that during her journey there was no airport checks, there was a number of stops on the way to Dublin but there was no airport checks that she could see that were worth um, any sort of weight and they interviewed another couple who were coming to a wedding in ireland um and that they did say yeah we will go into self-isolation for two weeks and when they were asked about well how are you going to get to your destination i will get a taxi or we'll get a bus and um when you got to look at this there's ten thousand new infections in the state of texas alone on friday um so very clearly, as we open up the economy, we're just inviting another surge of COVID-19. So that's really what I have.
0: Yeah, I, I did notice, um, I think there was an extra, you, you said 10,000 extra cases in Texas. I think there's 10,000 extra cases in Florida as well. And the south and the South East appears to be really, really uh, badly hit. So much yeah. so that even Trump, in, in yesterday's Irish Times, it says that Trump is p- postponing his rally um as a uh, as as virus surges, which is which is the headline. But that sort of i will come to Stevie and what's on the front pages of in a second of your one. But um, just there's a really good article staying with this topic just for a second by uh, Professor Luke O'Neill um, in the Sunday Indo again today. And he's he's turned out to be quite the voice around what's going on. And if you don't don't know, Luke O'Neill is a professor of biochemistry in the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College. But the the headline is very simple and very easy to understand. If we're going to open the pubs, we need to shut our airports. And there's cases in Kerry, I think it is, where there was a party the other day as well. um, And one person attended the party who knew they had, it seems that they knew they had the virus, and has now spread it to more people at that, that house party from Kerry. But they they were, you know, I think all 23 of the new infections on Friday, or Friday it was, all 23 of them came from overseas. So you can't open the pubs uh, because that's where it gets spread. And this is what Luke O'Neill is saying. If you have open airports, you're just, it's a recipe for disaster. So, um, yeah, Stevie, we'll come to you on, well, if you want to talk about that or go to the front pages first.
2: Uh, I suppose, well, I went I went in this morning to buy the newspapers, and I remember thinking, well, I, what will I buy in? Well, I buy the local rags, and I thought to myself, well, I'll stand here and close my eyes, and I'll guess what the headlines are, and if I'm right, I'm not going to buy them. So I thought, well, the newsletter's going to have something about Bobby's story, and I thought, the Irish News, it's going to go with, I don't know, bonfires or some shit. And I opened my eyes, and hey, presto, the headlines of both those fucking newspapers was Bobby's story and bonfire. So I thought, no, I'm not buying them today. So I didn't bother, I just left them there, but. And um, so I picked up the, the paper of the British establishment the some times and the other paper of the British establishment, the Observer, which you've now made me buy day for the first time in six years, which I'm not very really pleased about. Both of them have on the front pages, you know, discussions about obviously the British economy and what Sunak's up to. And um, last week, his big announcement was his Nando's vouchers. I mentioned it last week, the, the Resolution Foundation proposed some sort of 30 billion investment in consumption vouchers. They ended up being £10 vouchers to take your family out. Eating. that's the response of the tory government to the existential crises that we face you know um the interesting thing of course about both of those papers is that they're both now mimicking the narratives of the fact that someone's going to have to pay for this crisis and they're going to have to either introduce massive public sector cuts or pay or uh, tax rises or or both you know cuts and, and t- tax rises and public sector cuts uh, and both papers are kind of, you know, that's the red Tories and Labour and, and, and the real Tories are kind of forming there around this new narrative that this has to be paid for. And then later on in the Sunday Times, in the real small print, in a, in a, in a big article, there's a, where did I find it? Here yeah, it is, it goes, um, the government enjoys record low interest rates to borrow. So they're saying, well, you can actually still borrow because the interest rates have never been lower. And then right at the bottom, it says, and Andrew Bailey The new governor of the Bank of England has signaled that it is not his job to keep printing money to help the government. Oh, there we go. There's the real story in all of this, is that the British government doesn't actually have to borrow to to invest uh, post-COVID economy. It can just print its own money and use that money to invest through direct monetary finance. I'm not going to get into that now, but the, the myth being built up now about having to borrow money to save the economy is just that. It's a myth, but it's a really important myth because if you start telling everyone how in debt we are, people get that people and start using those kind of handbag economics household budget kind of arguments saying we have to balance the books then people will accept austerity 2.0 when in fact the reality is at the moment the bank of england is directly financing government expenditure in britain there's a really big story there most people aren't aware of it most people don't really understand how government finances work particularly in countries that have produced and uh, print their own money, but um, we know that Austerity 2.0 is coming and we know that the British Labour Party are going to back it to the hills, as they did last time, by the way. So,
0: And it's a similar story down south. We'll come to John about this in a second, but there's one headline on page 29 of the Indo. Recovery can't be delivered without an element of pain. Uh, Colin McCarthy again, Mr Austerity, uh, uh, the chairperson of board, SNP, I think it was, who, that got rid of the Combat Poverty Agency and all of the... Um, all of the NGOs and civil society groups back uh, 10 years ago. He's, he's back in the papers. Well, he's, he's been in the papers anyway, but yeah, he, he's talking austerity up. John, you want to come in on this?
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh, McCarthy is a former lecturer of mine. I had the unfortunate experience in the 80s in University College Dublin to be taught by both him and Moore McDowell, who is the worst brother uh, to the other fella. Michael <laughs> McDowell, two extremely aggressively right wing economists who, you know, of course I'd listen to nothing they had to say. And in fact, uh, just on Stevie's point there, you know, it is a myth. And we have two contrasting stories in the Sindo and the Business Post. So you have Cormac McCarthy going on about the usual handbag economics, you've got to balance the budget. You should go and read Stephanie Kelton's new book, The Deficit Myth. And, you know, look at how modern monetary theory can actually solve quite a lot of these these problems. So, yeah, he's basically, you know, pain is going to calm the usual kind of shtick. So it is, as Stevie said, austerity 2.0 being built up. You contrast that then to somebody that I know a little bit. He's an economist in UCD, Aidan Reagan. And he has a really interesting proposal um, on page 10 of the business post. He's talking about a people's wealth fund. Um, in terms of the Irish state managing a portfolio a bit like the, suppose, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and so forth. Now, he does um, acknowledge that is this simply not neoliberalism for the people and so on, but at least it's beginning to open up uh, a, a policy space. And it's a big, front, uh, sorry, whole-page uh, article that's fairly long. And he makes a good point, and, and it's amazing that in a, a paper like the Business Post, he managed to get in Thomas Piketty uh, he managed to talk about capitalism and he managed to put forward, you know, you could say it's a kind of a modest proposal in terms of, you know, the, the Irish state creating a, uh, you know, fund. But they, they have two, kind of stra- two contrasting ways in which talking about, and the same old shite that, that, that we've had on the Neoliberal right from McCarthy. Um, and of course, what's in the mix of all of this, and it's covered particularly in the Business Post, Uh, and it's a a rumbling story that will, even though the the court will decide this week about the Apple case, the 13 billion that the EU Commission wants the Irish government to take, Uh, it looks like it is gonna be decided this week, it'll probably go to the European Court of Justice. There's another pot of of funding that could be used by the Irish state. So just interesting to see these different political economy responses being reflected uh, in these rather conventional newspapers.
0: Yeah, the the Apple case is going to be a very interesting one. We all, be, I presume, we'll all be waving the European flag around. Uh, all of us in this group here uh, come Wednesday if we're successful. <laughs> well, I say we're successful. But what, what 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 was interesting? I don't was think it, the fucking European flag, maybe. <laughs> I have it behind me. Um, the uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the one of the interesting things I found about the Apple tax case was uh, about two weeks ago in the Sunday Business Post. Um, it found that the, the investments that from the escrow account were making a loss. We never actually covered that. Um, and that, that they'd invested millions or billions in, in certain um, certain funds and uh, was making a, a loss. But, you know, that's taken out of our pocket. I think it made a 40 million loss or something. Some money we could, we could certainly do it now. But... Um, uh it I, I think stevie you you guys are gonna the trademark belfast podcast you're gonna do a special about that after the the announcement on on during the week yeah um, yeah we're
2: gonna do we're gonna we have um, um comrade Connor mccabe and uh emma clancy both coming on to talk about the um well broadly about the apple decision whatever that decision is
0: on wednesday so we'll record that wednesday and we'll have it hopefully on thursday right grand. Um, I'll come back to one of you guys in a minute, but just linking those two stories about state aid and uh, and the COVID crisis. There's an article in yesterday's Irish Times on page two about surplus hotel rooms and facilities for pandemic use costing the state millions. Um, and I, I, I've been saying this since the start about uh, on one of our first podcasts about the private... Um, healthcare industry and private hospitals getting a massive bailout five times the amount that the the private hospitals in the uk got uh, at a time when obviously private hospitals weren't going to be functioning or doing anything anyway and they were getting all this money and then the pub the public just didn't use it the state didn't use those hospitals and it's the same with these hotels it says here that in one of the most expensive moves the government rented the city west hotel in Saggart for 21 million on a lease that was to run to the end of December, and of course they haven't used any of the rooms. But it goes through a list of the different hotels: three hotels in Temple Bar—Handles Hotel, uh, River House Hotel, uh, Garnish Hotel, a twenty-one. Uh, guest room even my in my area the national show center in swords they're renting that at the moment for four thousand five hundred euros per week so when they're talking about there's not enough money and we're gonna have to have cuts and all the rest of it there's still a certain amount of people who are doing quite well out of this while leaving the the actual places completely empty so um stevie do you want to come in with anything uh, oh sorry no we'll go to john john do you want to come in on some of this stuff
1: (laughs) yeah no just in the business post has a similar story there in terms of i think it's a page 8 where over the last five years the irish state has spent almost half a billion euro on temporary uh, accommodation um so again it's that issue of well what in some respects what a waste of of, of money uh, why are we pushing people into homelessness it's still with the you know the causes and not just dealing with the effects but also then you know the magic money tree seems to be available uh, where needs be so it's just interesting to see the figures i mean that's half a billion uh, pounds being spent that could have been spent on building houses
0: yeah well I, I do know that HAP the HAP scheme and the other all, all, when you combine all of them together it's about a billion euros a year that is currently being spent and it's hard to get uh, in your head how much a billion euros is like it really is difficult to sort of contemplate um, and that, that amount of money um, but when you think about it the state takes in about 54 55 billion a year in total from all taxes from vat excise duty income taxes corporation tax every every little bit so it's it's 150th of that and and as you say like what would really make sense is if they spend that 1 billion on building public housing and then they wouldn't have that overhead and they'd own the asset uh, but this that's not the uh, ideology of a neoliberal government um kieran do you want to come in on anything here Have you got any other stories you want to talk about
3: yeah, there was one story that I thought was of interest, um, and again, it, uh, it's sort of banging the drum of the COVID-19, but it, it, it relation, it was in um, Freddie's uh, Irish Independent, it was written by Ananya McMahon from the press agency, which raises questions again, you know, um, wasn't a staff reporter, but it's in re- respect of the meat industry, Ireland, attending the Freddie's Eritre special committee on the C-19 response. And effectively this for me um throws up the whole issue about unionized versus non-unionized employments and the benefits of things like a good sick pay scheme or even to have one in unemployment and you know you had one of the directors um of a guy called cormac healy who told the, the committee when asked about the sick pay scheme in the meat industry plants and in some um there is a sick pay and in others, there is not, which is common across the economy. And it's that particular, you know, it's common across the economy. It just demonstrates that there, in a lot of um, private enterprise industry, there are no sick pay schemes out there. And he was trying to justify this that in the meat industry, um, you know, we're just reflecting exactly what's going on in and across the economy. Um, and when he, to a certain extent, when he was asked questions about, I think it was Fina Gale TD on that special committee um where he was it was suggested that if there was no sick pay scheme then workers um if they were sick would come to work because they weren't going to be um receiving any sort of um money for being off work on sick or even if they were suspected of covid-19 and he he, he answered it. <laughs> I would say it is a matter for the individuals. I would say some of them have it, some of them don't. But equally, all of the government measures in terms of the pandemic situation and payments and entitlements were all given in the languages that the workers required, unquote. Excellent. So you were told in the language, um, in your own language, no, you're not entitled to a sick pay scheme. Um, And where do these workers actually go? Because if they haven't paid enough of their stamps, um, their social insurance contributions, then they're likely not to have received any sort of sick pay scheme from the government. Um, and what was interesting about this, he was definite about certain answers, but indefinite about others. Um, he knew exactly, he didn't know exactly how many sick pay schemes were out there in the meat industry, but he did know that all the meat industry plants provided all of this information regarding their entitlements. In the languages that they so required and he wasn't pressed at no stage was he pressed um, and at no stage um, did anyone turn around and say well why do you not know how many of your the meat plants in the country have sick pay schemes and what has been done to address that there was none of that going on in any shape or form and again it's this type of thing that they just accept this situation where highly profitable industries do not provide something as basic as a sick pay scheme especially when you think about people these type of workers going into an environment where they were not only um, putting their lives at risk but maybe their communities when they went back into the communities after work and i find it distressing that again this is all just passed on to the state um, in terms of addressing these sort of shortfalls and any sort of employment uh, issues and the state just seems to pick up the cost of this and the employers get away with blue murder and this for for me if anything demonstrates why you should be in a unionised employment
0: absolutely and we've come across that with the lloyd's pharmacy dispute last year yep. or two years ago where some of our members were coming to us telling us that they had pneumonia uh, bronchitis um uh, infectious diseases swine flu one member had and they had to go to work because they had no sick pay scheme you're talking about pharmacists people working dealing with you know, vulnerable patients who are already sick and they're handing prescriptions over the counter to, to those people. John, you want in on this one as well? No, just
1: when Kieran was talking about the meat industry, I couldn't help but reflect on my poor vegan sensibilities being assaulted reading the Sindo. There were three pages of ads from Dunn stores and it just looked like every feckin' page, was just wall to wall meat. I know that we're a bit gammon like <laughs> on the podcast, but I'm getting flashbacks now of them three pages of meat. Thanks, Kieran.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Stevie, yeah, do you want to come in with a, a, another story
2: there? Yeah, there's a good story in the Observer today about um, it's a case going to the Supreme Court in Britain this week, and it's an equal pay case, the largest equal pay case ever in uh, in Britain. Uh, and obviously, it refers to North of Ireland as well. That's UK wide. About forty thousand current and former ASDA employees who have taken a case against ASDA um, for equal pay. Um, It's a 13-year legal case that's been dragging on for ages, and uh, the Supreme Court looks as if the Supreme Court's going to find in favour of the employees this week. Um, The the same firm that's taken that case for those 40,000 employees is also taken cases against Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Morrison's, and the co-op, believe it or not, Um, and it could lead to a payout for those workers of anything up to eight billion billion pounds in lost pay um some of the people involved were working for Asda for like 35 40 years you know so there's an awful lot of money involved So that's a good trade union story this week there's another one i wanted to mention and it's weird. a little weird one actually because it's in the times the sunday times there's a small article about the upcoming unite elections unite the union of which i'm a member i think you're a member too dave um obviously unites a british space union that has membership in ireland and it's it's kind of a um, they mentioned two of the candidates that stand in. They mentioned uh, Sharon Graham and Howard Beckett. Howard Beckett's from Northern Ireland, and they they called him a left-wing firebrand. And It's just weird that there's this piece in the Sunday Times on the upcoming United election, but they don't mention the third candidate. And the third candidate is Steve Turner. And I'm not sure which one of those candidates is going to represent the United left who make their decision next Saturday, I believe. But it's important because, you know, United's the largest union. It's got 1.2 million members. It's a major funder of the British Labour Party. Um, so it's, it has some significance, I suppose, for that um, for the for the future of the left in Labour in Britain, if there is going to be a future for the left in Britain, and a lot of that will come down to who wins that election. Even though the election hasn't actually been announced yet, but uh, it's a funny little piece that the Sunday Times has, and it's almost as if the Sunday Times is backing Howard Beckett, um, as opposed to the who I, I assume will be the United Left candidate next week will be uh, will be Steve Turner.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I have a a couple of quick stories here that will lead us on to a difficult question for John Barry, being a Green Party uh, activist. But um, and I knew you had him him on for some reason. Just (laughs) have a go at him, wasn't it? Oh, give it to him. It's the only reason we bring them on. Um, So now, just a couple of health stories that will lead us hopefully on to to, to a couple of questions for John there. But in um, in the Sunday Indo here, I have a story there. Uh, in tiny little story, only two paragraphs. Um, urgent need for action on, uh, on waiting lists. It's a healthcare story, obviously. Um, waiting list figures released by the National Treatment Purchase Fund show urgent need for healthcare uh, catch-up programs, says Sinn Féin health spokesperson David Cullinan. But he's talking about the numbers um, that came out during the week. 84,000 patients waiting on an appointment for an inpatient or day case treat- treatment. 35,000 patients 35,000 waiting for an appointment for an endoscopy and a staggering 584,000 patients waiting for the first hospital outpatient uh, consultation um, but what I found really interesting on the next page after that was about how a scanner uh, Ken Fox for people don't know, who don't know Ken Fox he's a good journalist who uses freedom of information on absolutely everything and gets some really unique stories out of it and he's got one here about a baby scanner in Hollis Street um, that they've been using since 2006 but the scanner itself only has a 10-year uh, period with which you can use it and the, the, the warning in the internal report said that Uh, The scanner currently uh, in use at Hollis Street may injure babies. Uh, It said um, it could become obsolete. Scanner could become dislodged and land on a newborn infant with catastrophic effect. Um, And they're trying to get a new hospital scanner in for infants there for the last couple of years, but obviously. The um, finances aren't there for it, and it might they might struggle again here. And that leads me to a my my segue story, which is the one in the Sunday Business Post, John. I don't know if you've seen this one, but it's really about um, it, it's a story about private clinics at the Children's Hospital being the new Children's Hospital that's just being built, um, that they're going to allow uh, private clinics to operate there. So it's a you know the infrastructure paid for by the taxpayer, the public is funding all of this stuff, but yet. Private healthcare patients can benefit out of it without having to fund any of the infrastructure. But what, what, what's interesting um, and less so about the healthcare side of it is that it's Stephen Donnelly, minister, the new minister for health. He's only in the job, and last year he was highly critical of the fact that you could use uh, private healthcare in the public hospital. But now he's got his feet under the desk, and he's happy to allow that, and he's defending the uh, right of private operators to operate out of a, a public hospital paid for by the taxpayer. Um, so, my question really is, and I'm not saying you're a minister or you're not representative of the Green Party here, but doesn't everything all change once you get your feet under the desk? Well,
1: isn't it, it, it oh, it's amazing how he's, uh, Donnelly has washed any residual social democratic element from him completely as he's gone over to the soldiers of destiny? I suppose, I mean, again, I've never been inside government. It was only ever in the molehills of power here, as such as it is in, in North Down, about unionist-dominated council. I was, I was, like, the only gay in the village uh, in terms of, you know, largely the only non-unionist voice. But I do think that, you know, certainly from conversations I've had with other more senior politicians, some in the Greens and some outside, that the tramlines of your manoeuvrability once you get into office, uh, are actually a lot less than we think. But, of course, a lot of this is ideological uh, in that the, uh, you, know, you accept the stories being told to you by your senior civil servants and so on. I think that's certainly my, one of my take-home messages or learnings from what happened to the, to the Green Party last time it was in coalition, um, and then it was wiped out, and I think it's probably going to be wiped out again after this, is, is the ways in which if you're a new party minister and so on not really knowing much and there's a story here of, of, of a new Finnafall minister which kind of indicates it the civil service can run rings around you uh, and the story I'm, I'm talking about here is an interview in i think was a, i don't know if the business post or is it in the sindo with the new minister for uh, education and it's a textbook example of someone who either has not a fucking baldy clue because it says nothing. So there's a, a couple hundred words of an article where the journalist lists each question that uh, was asked of her. Norma Foley, I think her name is from Kerry. And she says absolutely nothing uh, except kind of vague management speak of stakeholder involvement and so on. And I think we might expect, you know, some of that from particularly ministers who basically were councillors last year and now have up their game. But just to do a quick tour of, there's quite a lot of stories that connect to the Green Party and Green Party ministers in, in both papers. The first one is poor old Roderick O'Gorman, and I think he's been subject to a lot of homophobic uh, abuse online and so on about his supposed endorsement of Peter Thatchell's wrongly reported views about you know having sex with children and so on. That hopefully is going to peter out, but the more worrying um I suppose, question I would have for Roderick. It's, this is in the Cindo on page 12. And his ambition is that uh, crash fees should be no greater than what people are paying for a mortgage. And you kind of say, mother of God, is that the, is that the extent of our ambition, that you shouldn't be paying for childcare, which is a human right and that should be necessary for people to, to enjoy? And our ambition is that it shouldn't be any, any higher than what you're paying your house so that certainly doesn't fill you uh, with much positivity other ones connected to uh, green green issues is I'm not particularly interested in this is that apparently it was Finna Gale and the greens in negotiations who um, defeated fianna Fall and wanted to get rid of the policing authority I don't know whether that's good bad or or indifferent there's an interesting story around Amon Ryan in his new position of being lobbied or being asked questions around whether it should be mandatory to wear uh, helmets. Uh, and actually, the, the, the evidence is that actually wearing helmets or making it mandatory can actually have a, a detrimental impact on people uh, taking up cycling, um, you know, from international evidence. What's interesting is that there was, I think it was a Fianna Fáil TD, rural TD, who was asking him the question. And it turns out that he's asking the question on behalf of bike shops. So the very people who have an interest in selling helmets were the ones that were, were asking this particular question. Uh, then there's a, uh, issues around, um, you know, biofuels as part of the transition to a low-carbon economy, which I've got lots of problems with in terms of their their impact. Uh, it's a very capital-intensive way of going about it. But then the final one, and it doesn't all go well, perhaps for the Green Party having any clout in the coalition, is the opening up of the Phoenix Park to to cars. And that was actually done at the behest of Leo Varadkar, despite Greens, you know, from Senators to MEPs all being against it. And you kind of say, Jesus, lads, if we can't even stop cars getting into the Phoenix Park, how in the name of James are we going to get other things done. So I think it's not been a good start in terms of uh, filling you with confidence as to if this is going to be the Greenest government ever, it's going to be one where Green has a very different meaning of being a Greenhorn.
0: Yeah, I, I've, I've, I'll come back to some of the Green stuff in a minute. Um, because I do have more questions on it for you in particular, but I want to bring the other two lads in on, in particular on, on yesterday's protest outside of the doll. I don't know if, um, if you've all, all seen it and it, it, it again goes back to this, um, what, what, you know, you mentioned it in page six of today's though cowardly smear of children's minister is part of a witch hunt says Tatchell. So the the guy who made the comments himself is out there saying that the, You know, basically for the listeners that aren't aware of of what happened, Uh, Roderick O'Gorman was at a pride march and uh, Peter Thatcher was at it. And there's a photograph of them together. And so people have linked the minister, the now minister um, with uh, the the comments that have made by, by somebody he met once in in his entire life in a photograph. Um, And, and like, he obviously the minister has already released a statement distancing himself but anyway that's not going to stop the far right from uh, preying on vulnerable minds and um, and i don't mean to be disrespectful to people but hundreds of people turned up yesterday outside of the doll to protest against this and the national party who are a far right party um, had banners with nooses on them you know indicating that they wanted to hang uh, certain people in government um uh, and anybody associated with them uh, this this is really worrying for the Republic of Ireland but uh, you know we, we've just never had a, a far right that's been organized to this extent where they felt safe enough to go onto the streets of Dublin outside the parliament with these types of banners um, and that they weren't really kicked back if you remember three years ago or so they tried to organize an event on Do- on O'Connell Street and they literally got beaten back into into the shops um, I'll get Stevie to come in first and then I'll come to Kieran to see if you've any observations around what's happening right now and, the, 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 and, and yeah, Stevie.
2: Yeah, I think, I think that, that process was, was was Pegida, which was the German organisation which was you know, against the Islamisation of Europe or something, but no, it's quite clear that the, the most significant change in Irish politics really over the last couple of years has been the arrival of not just fascist narratives into Ireland, but like fascist organising. You know, it's, we haven't really seen explicit far-right organising at any scale ever really so it's quite a relative new phenomenon whilst i've got no like there's no political success um uh, they do have a strong online presence and as yesterday showed they're beginning to have a presence on the streets and that's something we need to be concerned about difficulty yesterday of course is that they insinuate themselves into all kinds of different social issues so they attract people to these events who aren't necessarily fascist so you can't kind of have a counter fascist demonstration to people who aren't you know it's, it's a difficult situation to to counter against it if times there's no doubt though when openly fascist organisations like the MP stand, we have to stand against them, and there has to be some coordination, some discussion about uh, not letting these people start to own the streets, you know. But um, what's clear to me, and and those of us who've been monitoring it, and in trademark, we do some of that work, is that um, this is part of an increasingly coordinated international effort, with international money as well. That's quite clear, because some of the money being spent in some of these parties, you're wondering where it all comes from and who's paying for it. Uh, And they're using the same language you hear all across the Western world and America, you know, that, Globalism cultural Marxism, and Marxism the great replacement that free speech, but it's always directed at the same thing Just anti-immigration Islamophobia in Ireland a particularly kind of toxic brand of conservatism and anti-feminism and misogyny and homophobia Um, and It's something I think we have to seriously talk about on the left and within the trade union particularly how we begin to actually counter this because there's no doubt for me that it's growing and as we go into austerity 2.0 If we don't provide, and I say we, I mean broadly the left, kind of rational answers to some of the social traumas we're going to face, well, the right's going to step into that space and they're going to provide irrational solutions to these problems. So we've got a big piece of work to do. Yeah, I
0: mean, we were supposed to... For the listeners, we were supposed to have Emma Clancy on based out of Brussels to talk about some of this stuff. And we were, myself and Emma had a chat during the week but uh, just about some of this. Uh, why the far right is gaining traction in Ireland um, when it never has in the past. And part of the problem we, we've identified, and we could be wrong on this, and I'll come to Kieran and get his opinion on it, is that Sinn Féin have always been that sort of... Um, that space, that anti-establishment space for working-class communities to go to. And the more popular Sinn Féin have become, the more they're seen as part of the establishment, for, for better or worse, um, and now there, there, there's a gap in the market, for want of a, a capitalist phrase, <laughs> to use a capitalist phrase, and now people are gravitating, unfortunately, in that direction. We saw from the water charges protests where there was a united working class of all sorts, but. Unfortunately, a gap was left, and that's now being filled by the far right. Kieran, have you any observations on what's happening?
3: Um, I think I I think Stevie sums it up very well, and you know, going on just to sort of build from what Stevie said there towards the end about our responsibility. I know you and I, Dave, have had a bit of a discussion around this over the last year. or So, um, as some some of us in left trade union circles have done but you know we're gonna to have to recognize that this is a problem and it's becoming ever more prevalent and it the organizational levels of this problem is what concerns me and the the feelers and you know the reach of these people is something that cannot be ignored and i think it was just in this podcast Um, A number of weeks ago that I raised the point about, you know, an ex-BNP leader was more or less residing on a temporary basis in the Gailtac community in Donegal and, you know, we're hearing stories that some of these people are doing some sort of manoeuvres out and around the hills of Connemara, which I have since had confirmed. Um, But I am very concerned and, you know, this is not having a pop of the trade union movement. But if you were to talk about some of the trade union leaders, they sort of brush this aside. Ah, oh, this will never happen in Ireland and this type of stuff. The more you ignore this, the more you're letting this grow. Um, and I think Stevie said a couple of weeks ago, you know, when these people appear in the streets, we've got to batter them off the streets. And that's the only answer to this. And Stevie's very correct about the international level of organization, where the money's coming, the language and the messaging that they're providing. And within Ireland, there's this seriously Catholic conservative element who will rush to that type of stuff um, that we're hearing the, the anti abortion, the homophobia, the anti Islam. Like we have a guy up here in Donegal who walks around with a sheepdog, and some of the stuff that that man is thrown out into them social media and even the the local media during the elections it's absolutely ridiculous but he gets votes now, he's not getting votes that'll get him elected but he's developing a base and i could not believe um when he was standing for the last elections that he was to see his picture up with him and his sheepdog uh on the the lamppost and i couldn't believe the amount of posters that there were. And I thought to myself, he obviously has in and around where I even live local support. And you're sort of looking around, well, which one of those fascist bastards is supporting him? But this that, it, we can't ignore this anymore. And um, I feel sorry for the new Minister for Children, Roderick. I think that's just a pure non-story. It's pure homophobia. It doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, and when you have people like Jim O'Doherty and John Waters doing what they can just to stoke up all of this nonsense, um, it, I, it concerns me. And the more we talk about it, the more concerning I become because of the inaction to fail. It. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's a very worrying time. And I think the left itself has to get organized, uh, properly organized, not you know rhetorical organizing and, and, and cooperation but um we'll, we'll move on and uh, i'll come to uh we we'll go to john john you you have another story for us there i think
1: yeah a couple of things one is uh pascal donahue now being elevated as the chieftain of the neoliberal finance ministers in europe and the applause the that's raining down uh upon him as a result of that um there's also an interesting story the sindo from Eilish O'Hanlon about the kind of class liberal disdain for Fina Fall. and um, she particularly takes aim at Fintan O'Toole uh, for his views in the past. And so that, that that issue of class and uh, certainly the divisions within Irish politics on class lines is quite interestingly reflected also in Gene Kerrigan, whom someone I generally uh, would like his writing. He's got a great. Uh, end piece today in, in the sendo, And it's almost like, if you remember years ago, that the old black and white, I think it was Ronnie Corbett and so on, and I had the class distinctions. I looked down on him, he looks up on me and so on. And the way he describes it at the moment, he says, the Finegalers look down on the fallers, and everyone looks down on the Greens. Uh, <laughs> which, I think it's a, maybe a little bit harsh, but actually just to finish that, uh, Kerrigan points out that the libel laws in Ireland actually uh, are um, you know, they're muzzling uh, commentary uh, in terms of a more critical sort, in terms of politics. And he has a lovely uh, way of describing. He says, it's like we're all standing in a small room, having a chat, and somebody's let off the mother of all farts. We chat away, keeping straight faces, pretending we don't get the stink. And it's a very evocative way of describing how, uh, you know, we don't get investigative journalism of the of, of quality that we need in part because of the way the libel law system has been set up. And the last I was a close story that, that caught my eye, it's a two-page spread in um, the Business Post, and it's partly to do with Michal Martin's attitude to a united Ireland, or as it's now called, a shared island. that a new unit has been, or at least has been a unit uh, in the background uh, in, in the Irish government there looking at, maybe an East German solution to the reunification and so on. But apparently, yeah, this was news to me, that in the negotiations, it was the Greens that insisted on changing the name of the unit from a united Ireland to a shared island um, perspective. And the last thing to say on that is that Michal Martin, who was um, uh, uh, you know, the leading member in the, in, in the supply and competence deal he had with Fine Gael of the Republican Party, I don't know whether people ever know, he was on the Fianna Fáil, Posters that they have underneath it, the Republican Party, and now he's poo pooing any uh, border poll idea that, of course, has been pushed
0: by Mary Lou MacDonald. Uh, just to take a go back to the Gene Kerrigan piece because I think it's a really well written and a really good, interesting piece. and He does come out with some good perspectives on it, and just in what you're referencing there, the fart part, um, is really about uh, one Fianna Fáil, or I don't know if for people who are on Twitter they'll know this, but one Fianna Fáil member came out and and accused a, well, not, not just accused, he actually pointed the finger and said, he did it. He ratted on count for his drink driving because he didn't get a ministerial position. And, of course, Kerrigan is afraid to name anyone involved in that scandal from Twitter. So you can do it on social media, but Ireland's libel laws are preventing Kerrigan from making um, those connections. But later on, there's a, and I don't mean to be bashing um, the Labour Party, but there's a really interesting piece here in, in right. uh, article... <laughs> It says, uh, so Paul Murphy basically wants to ask Barry Cowan questions about what happened with the, the provisional license and, uh, you know, the drink driving, and uh, you know, but he was prevented and there was a vote in the doll. and um, it, it says here that the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael crowd and their camp followers voted it down I wouldn't allow questions. And he says, outside the doll, Alan Kelly, leader of the Labour Party, called for count to address the unanswered questions. It goes without saying that the same Mr. Kelly voted in the doll against time to question the minister. They never let me down the Labour Party. Always good for a laugh. Really interesting uh, piece. I didn't actually know that they voted against asking the questions. Um, Stevie, you have another uh, story you want to bring in? Just briefly, it's, um, it's a story about, it's
2: another story in the, I think it was from the Observer all the Times. I can't remember now, but, um, and it was about another Labour frontbencher in, in England who's who's had to apologise for previous tweets. His name's um, Lloyd Russell Moyle. He's apparently a bit of a Corbynite, but apparently he's had to apologise to the Labour Party and remove tweets that he made a few years ago. Um, I'll read out one of the tweets. It was a, He said that Zionism was a dangerous nationalist idea, which I perfectly agree with that. Da- Zionism is a dangerous ethno-nationalist uh, idea, but... Um, he's been forced to retract the statement and apologize for it because within the British Labour Party now it does appear that the word Zionism now is anti-Semitic and discussion of that very concept of some sort of Jewish claim to some sort of ancient homeland that whole concept that we can have a debate around apparently that is now just not allowed to be debated within the Labour Party and it's kind of a shocking position to be in and we think it's bad here that the Occupied Territories Bill was thrown under the bus. And that is really bad, but at least fuck, we can talk about it. At least we can still talk about Zionism as a political philosophy that we disagree with. And we can say that Israel is an apartheid state evidentially and provably because of its, of it's, like, it's, it's lo- the laws that it introduces to discriminate against Palestinians and Arabs in Israel. And then in the Sunday Times, at the same time, there's another article about um, early this month, 2nd of July, Israel bombed in Iran and bombed its, uh, what was it? It, it, it blew up Iran's main nuclear fuel enrichment facility on the 2nd of July. Um, and it's quite clear that Israel, and they wouldn't have done that, obviously, without the backing of the United States. And here you have pressure being put on Iran now uh, with attacks, with sanctions, engineering, basically, a confrontation. And that's really what they want, they want to engineer a confrontation. So we have Israel acting as a, as a rogue terrorist state, evidentially, bombing. And then and in Britain, in the heart of Britain, the heart of this no criticism of that allowed because of the fear and the threat of being accused of being an anti-Semite. So we're in very, very dangerous times.
0: We yeah, are indeed. Uh, the, 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 you mentioned a story, uh, John, a couple of minutes ago about uh, Pascal Donoghue, a victory seen as revolt against EU's Big Four. The effective story is that Spain, Germany, France, they all wanted one. Uh, the Spanish finance minister to be elected as the, the chair of that, that group, the finance ministers, and uh, Pascal Donoghue, against all odds, managed to get himself in there. Um, have you got any interesting observations on that? Because one of the things I noticed that wasn't being covered in the Irish media this week, you'd only see it on in international ones, is the likes of Varoufakis um, coming out extremely strongly in, 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 in criticisms of this because what he's saying is it's a victory for the corporate tax avoidance system that Ireland has effectively because now you have the man at the top of the table who has very clearly stated that we, we, we Europe, the EU, should not have any harmonization around corporation taxes whatsoever. So, um, John, do you have anything to expand on on that one?
1: Well, beyond, there's a wonderful page in the program for government where we have a list of new taxes that are gonna come in. You know, we have a sugar tax coming down the pipe, we have a plastics tax, and of course, one that's gonna be extremely regressive in, in rural Ireland is a carbon tax. And then straight away after these have been outlined, the pro-government then says that the corporation tax rate <laughs> is not going to be touched. You know, and in a way, that kind of tells you all about you know my own rejection of the deal from a green perspective, where we're we're cycling into austerity. And you know, this pro-government really does give some truth to the description of greens as you know blue shirts on, on bikes. Um, but certainly, you know, Donohue's election is also being portrayed, Dave, as Ireland's rehabilitation. And, uh, and, and to be in good stead uh, of you know taking its punishment during the years of well where the country lost sovereignty um, and now being rewarded in part as a as a result of that but it doesn't give you any you know hope again that europe is going to do the right thing in terms of any post-pandemic recovery if you've got the likes of you know donahue in there and particularly because he's probably put there and pushed by the Irish government for one reason only, the one you've pointed to, to protect and defend the Irish corporation tax rate. It's almost as if, I used to explain this to my students, that and a lot of them got really offended. I put up an image of the Irish flag, and then I just quickly press next, and then 12.5% would be inserted into the uh, the white bit of it. And I said, that's the way in which the, the common sense portrayal of this is. I mean, I don't know whether you've come across the, the defences of the corporation tax rate are now increasingly being defended that it's supported by the Irish people. So it's not just about the, you know, the, the technicalities of attracting capital, but actually somehow it's now almost a part of our national identity. Well, For fuck's sake, if ever you wanted to read your Gramsci and how common sense and hegemony works, there it is. So I would propose here and now on this day, the 12th, happy 12th, everybody. I've got a story about the 12th. We must get in before we go is that we should, Reconstitute the Irish flag uh, that had 12.5% stuck in the middle.
2: Yeah, I was I was explaining to a mate of mine in Germany. He was asking about Ireland's role in Europe, and I said, "Well, you know, know at Christmas time when all the adults are sitting around the big Christmas table, and there's a little kiddies table to the side. And if you can just imagine Pascal Donoghue sitting at the kiddies table, he's about 16 years old. He's sitting there Fuck me! Why am I sitting with all the seven-year-olds? I want to be up there with the big kids.' They've given him. Like the corner, you know the corner chair, the shitty chair from the garage, he's now sitting on that shitty little stool at the very corner of the Christmas table, thinking he's up there with the big boys, with his big fork and his big knife and his fucking spoon, and that that's Ireland in Europe, it's, to talk about a laughing stock. these people think they're like a big player in, in international capital, and they're just, they've just become more and more embarrassing, you know, bring back Jack and make him president.
0: Yeah. But isn't it interesting that this is the green jersey stuff and it's a pity Emma's not on to talk about the green jersey and how that was used. Jersey was used as the double Irish tax and I'm sure she'll cover it later on again. But um, it it really is almost nationalism uh, where people are expected to celebrate the fact that Pascal Donoghue is now in one of the most neoliberal institutions in the world ever in, in the history of humankind. And we should all be celebrating that fact you know, there's one thing that was sacrosanct throughout the last crisis, and I'm sure it'll be sacrosanct again, and it's the 12.5% corporation tax. You can go and you can put prescription charges on old people. You can have a carbon tax. You can have excess winter mortality rates of 2,900 people dying on the island per year because they can't heat their home. But Pascal Dunne, is over in Brussels doing his thing. It's great. Um, Kieran, do you want to come in before I fi- finish up on, on, with my questioning of John?
3: No, Dave, I think the two lads have really summed up that whole Pascal Donahue situation. Um, I would totally agree with them and really have nothing further to comment on that.
2: <laughs> Grand. completely the fifth. Jesus, that's not likely, Kieran. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> right. Well, this, this leads me to the final bit, I suppose. I'm going to just throw a couple of questions because you're inside of the Green Party and people on the outside can see certain things that are going on, but we, we don't know exactly. But there's a really good interview with them. Um, Lord Mayor uh, of Dublin, hey, hey. which is, uh, I think she's played a stormer as well herself, and Nasa uh, uh, Horrigan have been really good people who I wouldn't have heard of a year ago or so, and and they've they've made some really good uh, points over the last while. But it's saying she's saying here that the Green Party needs a new leader, it needs a new strategy. I'm not going to get into the full ins and outs of what's in in the. Um, in, in the interview, but tell us your, from your own perspective, you've been in the Green Party a long time, you've been an activist, you know what's going on. Tell us a little bit of what's happening now at the moment, especially with the leadership challenge that's happening.
1: Well, the first thing to say is that I was welcome as a fart in a spacesuit in Green Party head offices for my very public opposition to us going into, into government. But it's clear that there is, like, you know, every party has these, and there is a split in the party. It's an ideological split. It's not the nonsense that the media were very keen to press that it's a North-South issue, that somehow we're all mad, radical, green uh, socialists up here in the North and that the South isn't. It's a split that, you know, includes a lot of younger women, which is quite interesting. You mentioned Hazel Chu there, Nessa Hurrigan, You've got Lorna Bogue in Cork. You've got Saoirse McHugh, although Saoirse, I think, is on her way out of the party. And They've been quite vocal, very articulate in terms of essentially offering... Um, An eco-socialist perspective for a lot of them, Uh, you know, really pressing home uh, an idea that's very dear to myself and and Stevie's heart in particular. Uh, The idea of a just transition. Absolutely, we need to decarbonize the economy and so on. but we have to do it in a way that's not going to heap more pain on working class people. It's going to provide compensation retraining for fossil fuel sector jobs that are going to go. None of which I could see really in the program for government. So, I think what's interesting here is somebody I've not mentioned already, and I don't know what that went at all, is the deputy leader, Catherine Martin, who led the Green Party into the negotiation. And it was always my sense that she was against the deal. Uh, And actually her opening remarks, we had a special convention, um, and her opening remarks took us all by surprise when she came out in support of it. And I think it was her that won over a lot of party members to uh, you know, accept the deal. Uh, will she beat Eamon Ryan? I don't know. If you look at, at, at Twitter and social media, I think Catherine Martin is the favourite, but I think that gives you a an, uh, uh, not an accurate description of Green Party views because I think the people who voted for the deal will also vote for Eamon, and they were largely the settled, guilty middle classes of Dublin in a, in a way. I mean, you can tell I'm quite critical in a way so of, of, of members of my own party here, but I'm just telling it as I as i see it so my own view is i i, I think it'd be a, a tough job for catherine to replace aim and particularly now that you know the party voted 76 percent higher than any of the other two parties which really you know took me completely by surprise so there is a division um you know you got people like Sergio, very promising great talent very articulate is going to leave and so on and so there are moves, and I'm part of these moves within the party to try and create a a, a space, you know, an affiliate group uh, where we can have people who are either exiting the party, it's a conduit for them to leave or to stay partly involved. But my own view is that we can get too caught up with the electoralism of all of this. You know, it's always been my view, even when I was a, a you know a local councillor, that that's not going to be the the vehicle necessarily to you know radically transform societies. We do need in my view non-violent direct action of the type we see in extinction rebellion a general strike and so on so while i am pissed off and still very angry that i haven't got the balls to leave the party uh, and have the courage to go (laughs) and join something else i'm gonna stay and, and, and and fight my corner uh i am more committed now and there are others in the party who feel like me that now is the time with the climate crisis is to get dug into our communities to get alongside allies in the trade union movement, even in faith communities, sporting groups, act, that there is a you know an, an awareness amongst many of us now that actually you know ele- electoralism is not going to deliver what what's needed. The most it delivers an unjust transition.
0: Sorry, I was muted there. I I I, uh, I hear what you're saying. I, I I mean we've been saying it for a long time that there's. Uh, Within, within our union and within a couple of other unions that would be seen as radical left unions that the, any changes that are going to come in Ireland, are not going to come through parliamentary democracy. We look at the water campaign. We look at, you know, even the repeal, the, you know, the marriage equality, those big campaigns were not led by the parliament. Uh, the politicians followed. They, they, they saw what was going on. And I think there's a massive space there. And it's just the fragmented nature of the Irish politic that, you know, there's people in the Green Party um who would have uh as you say, you know, the socialist tendencies there and the the the, the, the um even even just to reference one part of that article by hazel Chu. you know climate action that's a massive message but the other thing is we can't have it at any price so absolutely we need action but we need to make sure that you have social justice aspect as well and when i say so- social justice i mean housing i mean health i mean people being able to f- afford to pay for a roof over their head that there's people in the green party with that perspective who share more with certain people in other parties like Sinn fein who's obviously a a national party and and wants to unite the uh, island. But there's people in there who would unite it on any cost, and there's other people in there who would prefer to unite it on the basis of a socialist republic type of thing. And it's, it's really about how do we get these people from the different parties, different perspectives, collaborating outside of the parliamentary structures or party structures that they have. So it's one for a conversation for another day. I think, Stevie, you wanted to come in on that, did you? I
1: I just have one funny to to finish off, given the day that's in it, the glorious 12th, is that uh, it's a story in the Sunday life here in that Amazon are um, rejecting um, calls that it it, it stopped promoting a particular brand of gin called King William because it was going to offend people in Northern Ireland. And the headline of it is brilliant. It's called the bottle of the bovine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, excellent! All right, and um, look, we've probably run out of time. I think we're an hour into it, um, so I'm going to just thank our guests Stevie and Kieran again, the usual guys, but in particular, I want to thank uh, Professor John Barry again for coming on and um, to give us uh, to enlighten us as to what's going on in the Green Party, but also his perspective on some of the the news articles for the day. This has been the Week at Work episode ten and uh, we hope to hear you see or hear you soon um, but in the meantime make sure you tune into trademark belfast's um special episode this week in relation to the apple tax and its implications for the irish uh, taxation system but also its implications for 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 all the rest of us we may have 13 billion in our back pocket very very soon let's have a party thanks very much